Well, kia ora, hello and welcome to the Coast Vineyard podcast. Whether you're a regular or a first-time listener, it's so good to have you listening in. We hope and pray that wherever you may find yourself at today, that the message that you're about to hear would be helpful for your journey of faith. So without further ado, let's get into this week's message. Today, we're going to be looking outside the context of just our church family and community, but towards society in general. Because relationships don't just exist in our families and in our churches, but um, they're also in the public spaces that we are in. And we're faced with questions like, how do I respect my boss? Or what about the government? Or what do I do when a police officer pulls me over the side of the road for, for speeding? But today I want to dig into Scripture, and Scripture has some very helpful encouragement for us on how to live well as citizens. As people who walk across our town centres, who share office spaces, and people who talk about voting in the elections. But ultimately, let's talk about how to live well as Jesus followers in our world. So if you have your Bible today, we are opening it up to the New Testament, and specifically to the book of Titus, which is a letter that Paul is writing to Titus, who is a Greek Christian and trusted co-worker of Paul. And if you don't know Paul, well, Paul is, um, is an apostle from the Bible whose story of redemption marks that no one is beyond God's saving grace. And um, Paul is um, he's a writer of also many of the New Testament books. But in this instance, Paul had assigned Titus with the task of going to the island of Crete to restore order to a network of house churches. And here's what he has to say in Titus chapter 3. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to stand in no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, envy sorry, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. And not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be, profit, may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So in a nutshell, Paul is instructing the church on Crete on right living as believers in a pure and peace-loving manner that is formed by the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And he's providing guidance on the new kind of humanity the gospel can create within the Cretan communities. Now, before we go any further, it is always very helpful to get an understanding of the cultural context of Scripture, to know what life was like in this particular time and place in history. So if we look at Titus chapter 1 and verse 12, um, Paul says that Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. 
Now, that's not very complimentary of Paul, but um, just in case, you know, you might, might think that this could have just been a one-off bad interaction with the Cretans, we'll get a second perspective. So William Barclay, who's the author of Letters to Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, he writes that the Cretans, Cretans were notoriously turbulent and quarrelsome and impatient of all authority. So it seems like there is a bit of a trend here, but just to give them the benefit of the doubt, I'll get a third perspective. So Polybius, who was a Greek historian, said that they were notorious for treachery, greed, and unsafe for violence. Hmm. I think it's pretty clear cut. It sounds like the Cretans were not the kind of folk who you might um, sit down for an enjoyable cup of tea with. They were quite a rowdy and anarchic bunch, and people were disrespectful to each other and authority. So it seems that Paul was warning the Cretan church against getting caught up in this cultural way of being, which was countercultural to the gospel ethic. And Paul says to Titus to remind them the church had potentially forgotten the difference of the way of Jesus, and he did not want the DNA of Christian churches to be altered because of the negative engagement of um, the cultural behavior within Cretan society. Because the risk of this way of life in the Cretan church is that God's word is discredited, and the Christian message becomes totally unattractive and not, comp not compelling, and there's no point of difference. As Titus 2 says, in everything, set them an example by doing what is good, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. The gospel must prove itself in the public square if it is going to change Cretan culture. So one of the key messages that I think Paul is communicating here is that Christians should be known as ideal citizens. Peaceable, generous, obedient to authority, and known for pursuing the common good. So as I say this, I will start with a disclaimer, and that is compliments of a renowned Christian author, C.S. Lewis. And many of you may know C.S. Lewis, who is a great theologian and thinker. And in his book, Mere Christianity, he once dealt with the question as to why some non-Christians are nicer than Christians. And in postulating a Christian woman who he calls Miss Bates, who may have an unkinder tongue than the fictionary unbelieving Dick Firkin, he says the question is what Miss Bates' tongue would be like if she were not a Christian. Further, Dick's placid temper and friendly disposition result from natural causes which God himself creates. So I preface this with the words of Mr. Lewis as I guess often it can seem like, like some Christians are trying to be all high and mighty by claiming particular moral good goodness. And I guess it could come across this way as I say that we seek to be these ideal citizens. However, it is well put by Mr. Lewis that we are all made in the image of God. And his reflection can be evident in all sorts of different ways through Christians and non-Christians alike. They just might not know it yet. But for us, we are just trying to seek out his way, which will mold us more into his image, which is ultimately the ideal way of being. But I think it's also helpful to note that there is a difference between cultural Christians and apprentices of Jesus. 
those that value certain moral values and traditions of Christianity, but really, in actual reality, live out a nominal faith, as opposed to those who let Jesus change their hearts and their character. So in the instance of Miss Bates, the understanding would be that she is in progress, and the hope would be that she is allowing space for Jesus to work within her. And I would say for, for most of us that that is the reason that why we gather here on a Sunday, is to be those people who, who do community together, but who also allow space for Jesus to work within our lives so that we can live and love better. Alrighty, so that's our disclaimer aside. Thank you, Mr. Lewis. But let's get back to Titus. It is intriguing to see within Titus parallels with our cultural moment. I would argue that our society is not too dissimilar in terms of being turbulent and quarrelsome at times. You only have to look at social media to see keyboard warriors arguing prolifically on some Facebook post about a person who parked terribly outside the local countdown, or perhaps driving down Hibiscus Coast Highway to experience some ruthless road rage. But on a bit of a personal note, um, for some of you, you may know that part of um, my journey was when I was 18 years old, I stood in the local body elections. And alongside a list of policies, one of the things that I was very passionate about was political discourse becoming um, more peaceable and less vitriolic. And at my first public meeting, I remember sharing a speech that talked about the hatefulness and disharmony that often goes on at a political level, which seems somewhat just justified in the context of government and elections. I mean, you only have to turn on the tully to watch examples of some pretty ugly um, debating or political attacking that gets quite personal at times. So when I arrived um, on the local board, I was ever hopeful that it wasn't going to be like this here. But I was very quickly confronted with the reality that this wasn't to be the case. The political unpleasantness resided in local government as well. And initially, if I'm honest with you, I was very upset and struggled with the unkindness that I faced from, from particularly one individual who I was working alongside who, who probably had a few different perspectives to me and saw me as a bit of a younger political opponent and I guess as a result didn't really decide to wear their friendly shoes in my presence. But whilst it would have been an easy option to play the same game and kind of slide into that subtle political attack mode, I felt God's invitation to flip the script and to make every effort to be gentle and peaceful towards this particular person. So that's what we tried to do. So during the council term, there was one point where this particular person had, had a close family member pass away. And so as a natural response to, to anyone in that situation, I thought, okay, well, maybe I should buy them flowers just to say, like, hey, I'm thinking of you during this difficult time. But at the time, I remember there were also some opposing thoughts that came to mind that were saying that that's not going to be well received. Um, they, they wouldn't do that for you, so why would you waste your money? Don't go for it. 
But in the end, I decided, okay, come on, Caitlin, pull your big, big girl socks up. Let's buy the flowers. So when I passed them on to them, I, I didn't get the chance to speak to that person, but the next day, I received an email which was expressing some great gratitude for the gift. And then fast forward to the end of the council term when I was finishing up my time on the local board and um, we had the opportunity to give farewell speeches um, and, and finish off that season. And the next day in the, in the mail, I received probably what would be the most massive bouquet of flowers that I have ever seen or received in my whole life. And at the time, I was wondering, who on earth could these be from? Was that from mum? Was that you? Was that you giving me a gift to just mark this, the end of the season? Or perhaps, Romeo, are you hiding behind the corner? <laughs> well, I can confirm it was none of the above. Who would it be? It was from this particular person who had very kindly written some words to acknowledge the end of my time in local government but who also expressed their great gratitude for thinking of them during a time when they were struggling with grief. And I was totally blown away that this person who I thought was going to be too tough a nut to crack had gone out of their way to send me flowers, and flowers that would have cost a fortune. So this stands out as one of the most significant moments and learnings from my stint in local politics. Because the lesson there was that no matter how hard it is, there is so much beauty in choosing to reflect God's grace-filled love to others. And if I'm honest in this situation, then was totally the temptation to be loyal to my politics and not to think twice about this individual. But I felt the call of God, as Paul says, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. And at the end of the day, what did it really matter that this person's politics won? Because what really matters is that they catch a glimpse of the goodness of God. And I think the message from Paul here is that we must keep in view the gospel, the good news of the saving grace of Jesus, because this is what our godless culture so desperately needs more than anything else. So in whatever capacity we may be involved in civic society, whether that be at our workplaces, in our universities, or driving around town, we need to keep our loyalty to God foremost in our minds. Because we are first and foremost followers of Jesus, not zealous political warriors or, or keyboard warriors for that matter. But we must be mindful that if we posture ourselves as combative enemies of the people in our lives who, who may be a bit tricky, but who don't yet know God, then we will ultimately alienate them from, from the good news of the saving grace of God that, that they need to hear. Now, let's be honest, I think we were all put to a similar test during COVID times. Tensions were high, politics became personal, many relationships experienced strain, families and churches became divided. And I approached this subject with not much enthusiasm because I'm sure, like many of you, we just want the season to be historical and move forward. And I also note that there are many sensitivities around the subject, 
which are to be respected, but I think it is somewhat necessary to look back with hindsight and ask the question, how did I handle my political beliefs and relationships? Did I give God a good rep when it came to my behavior? Did I allow an us versus them mentality view the other based on their views as opposed to their identity as a child of God? And did I season my responses with peace, gentleness, and grace? Something to think about. Furthermore, a particularly major cultural phenomenon which was prevalent during this time is the concept of cancel culture, which I think you could probably say that this is our modern-day equivalent to the Cretan culture in society. Now, for those of you who may not have heard of this term before, um, we've got a Cambridge Dictionary definition which says that cancel culture is a way of behaving in a society or group, especially on social media, in which it is common to completely reject and stop supporting someone because they have said or done something that offends you. So examples of this will include celebrities who are cancelled for holding and expressing a particular viewpoint. But the thing with cancel culture is, is that it has become more than just a way of responding to celebrities or, or entities whose behavior may have offended us, but it is also filtered down to our everyday relationships, to our friends and to our acquaintances. And we see it happening online and offline, where sometimes people rage at each other on social media, but also, sometimes it works silently, whether that be the simple unfollowing on Facebook or cutting out or ignoring someone in real life. And the thing with cancel culture is, is that it doesn't target the problem. It targets people. It is personal. It is naming and shaming, and it is fueled by the heat of the moment, um, passionate outbursts of emotion. So what is it doing to us? Well, I would say that it is forming a culture that nourishes revenge and mocks grace. And some wise people have some helpful things to say about this way of doing life with people. So Gregory Jones, who is an American theologian whose work has primarily focused on the topic of forgiveness, he says if all that matters is individual autonomy, then forgiveness and reconciliation, which are designed to foster and maintain community, are of little importance. Which is something interesting to ponder on because that's okay if we want to live in an individualistic society, but for us here at Coast, you know, our heart and our mission, especially for this year, our focus is on community, doing life together. So this emphasizes the, the importance of forgiveness. Then Timothy Keller, who was a pastor, author, and prominent Christian leader from the States, who very sadly passed away this year, he says that forgiveness is seen now as radically unjust and impractical, as short-circuiting the ability of victims to gain honor and virtue as others rise to defend them. And he goes on to say, we are becoming an unforgiving and divisive generation. Some pretty strong words. So how do we go about living in this way? And how do we go about combating the cultural forces of our time? Well, I would say it's going and plugging into our power source, and that is Jesus. 
Jesus is our saving source of grace that brings transformation in our lives and relationships. So back to the text, in Titus 3, verse 5 to 7, Paul says he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out generously on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So friends, church fam, we must not forget our transformation because it is God's kindness and his love that is what saved us and set us up for the ultimate good life in him. And it is through Jesus that we are declared right before him and we can step into this new future. And now if faith is new to you, then please know that Jesus, he also extends that invitation to you today. But what I want to hone in on is that we season our relationships with grace because that's what Jesus did for us. And in 1 John 4 verse 19, it says, we love because he first loved us. And elsewhere in scripture, it's Colossians, it says, we forgive because he first forgave us. He didn't cancel us despite our sin, because of our follies, or even because after being canceled himself by the very people he was trying to save. But Jesus' preferred approach was one of reconciliation, not of contention. And at the heart of what I think Paul is saying is not forgetting what Jesus has done for us. And we must remember the state of our BC self, our before Christ self, to remember the beauty of putting on our AD self. And Paul says that the gospel is powerful enough to transform someone into a new creation. So whether you live on the island of Crete or in on the hibiscus coast in little old New Zealand, let's remember that it is only through his saving grace that we are empowered to step into this new way of life. And we can be encouraged because we can lean on the Holy Spirit who produces good fruit within us as we mature in our faith and learn to do life well with each other. And I love what Colossians 3 verse 12 has to say about stepping into this new way of life. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. These are the desired characteristics of God's people. Now, I remember as a, as a young kid, my mom taught my brother and I about putting on the armor of God. At the start of every day, we were encouraged to physically act out the exercise of putting on the shoes of peace, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, and the shield of faith. And this was a really helpful exercise, which I actually still do to this day. And it reminds me that we live in a spiritual battle, but we are equipped by God to step into the field. So I've been thinking that perhaps this, this clothing metaphor that Paul speaks of could actually be a helpful starting point for our daily spiritual preparation in order to live well and in harmony with all the people that we encounter in our daily public lives. So I thought today, if it's okay, that we might put it into practice. So, as a matter of fact, I've brought along part of my wardrobe so that we can figure out this getting dressed thing together. So, 
Firstly, um, Paul says that we, uh, he speaks of a compassionate heart. So I've got my op shot vest here, and so we're going to put on our compassion blouse. And this is a response to God and to others, which is filled with love and concern rather than selfishness. Second, Paul mentions kindness. So I've got my jacket of kindness here, which is, you know, similar to our heart of compassion. But again, this refers to the way that we treat people and embrace others with generous love. Awesome. Then third, we are to live in humility. So I've got my humility sunglasses, and I'm only bringing these out today because we've just stepped into spring, so the sunshine is out, so we must protect our eyes. But not only is this about humbling ourselves before God, but humility is also important so that we don't act arrogantly or unfairly towards other people. And for example, this could look like when we're having a discussion, letting go of pride and admitting when we are wrong. It's getting a bit hot in my kindness jacket. Um, Fourthly, Paul mentions gentleness. So we've got my gentle socks and my favorite pair of socks. They've got little beagles on them. Um, But we're going to put on our gentle socks. And this is a way that we can remember to have a gentle heart towards others to not be hard-hearted. And I think it's important to remember too, when it comes to gentleness, that this isn't about being fearful or timid, but rather it's about how we learn to control our, our power and our strength as we engage with other people. Cool. Then finally, Paul expects patience from believers. So, I've got my shoes and we're going for a sock and sandal combo today. Very comfortable. And this will help me remember that I'm to walk not impatiently and not hurriedly, but with patience. So there we go, folks. We are all dressed and ready to go for the day. And maybe this could be a little exercise that you could do as you get dressed, but um, I'm going to take off my kindness jacket because it's far too hot in here. Sweet. So all of these qualities help lead us to collective harmony and sets us apart as a distinct community that truly demonstrates unconditional love. And love that doesn't cancel people immediately for doing any wrong or quickly cross them off the Christmas card list. But love that is the path that Jesus walked and the one that we too can walk with the Holy Spirit. So finally... Let's be devoted to the common good. Back to the text, Titus in 3 verse 8 says, And I want you to stress these things, that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So every time we devote ourselves to doing what is good, to choosing peace over conflict, gentleness over rage, or consideration over selfishness, our actions will profit and bless others. And even if we cannot see it in the moment, just like I didn't necessarily see it in the politics space, we can trust that God will work within it, that that will be a seed that is planted and may be germinated in times to come. And this is how we reflect his image. 
Now, before I move on to, to wrap up today, I do want to address a potential elephant in the room. And this was certainly an elephant that I wrestled with whilst digesting this passage. If we go back to the start of, of Paul in, in chapter 3 and verse 1, we read that our witness requires us to be subject to rulers and authorities. But what does this mean when we talk about doing good? What does it mean when the rulers are the, are the baddies? And does this mean that we are just compliant, uncritical, and unconcerned citizens? Does this mean that we put up with injustice, corruption, and how does this fit in with the instruction we've been given to do what is good? Well, I don't believe that this is the case at all and not the context in which Paul is referring to. Obedience should be our general practice, but in situations where the government or authority commands us to do something that would require us to disobey God, then if we look at the broader narrative of Scripture, if we look to Acts 5 verse 21, it says we must obey God rather than men. And we see cases of this right throughout the Old and New Testament, from Daniel who refused to obey the government orders to not pray to anyone but the king, or the midwives who refused to obey Pharaoh's orders to kill all babies under the age of two. Or if we look to Peter, who was thrown into jail for teaching and healing in the name of Jesus. We must remember that God is a God of goodness, of justice and righteousness. So this does not mean that we cannot necessarily voice our disagreements or even do everything lawful to get officials removed in cases of injustice or even stand for public office ourselves. And there are many modern day legends of the faith who very much personify this balance of pursuing the common good and justice in a God-fearing way. People such as William Wilberforce, Martin Luther King, Oscar Romero, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, it would be a whole sermon to probably dive deep into this topic, but if we look at people like William Wilberforce, who was devoted to the common good and advocating for change as a representative of Parliament, we see that, in his own words, that he says that God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. And then an alternative example, probably less well-known, is Madeleine Dabra. Now, that's a French name. Don't speak French, so apologies if I've offended any French speakers out there by my pronunciation. But Madeleine was a social worker for a church in Ivory in a small town in France in the 1930s, and this was during a time when there was a lot of tension between communism and Catholicism, um, and especially a really strong anti-God sentiment and movement within her community. So what Madeline is said to have commented is that God didn't say you will love your neighbors except for the communists. And so she resolved a simple plan with a few friends to love their neighbors personally, affectionately, and practically. And she also said that if they wanted to announce the gospel in the community, then she felt like that wasn't necessarily done by um, delivering beautiful speeches, but rather with charity. And so I know this is quite a niche example, but it's a, it's a particular example that makes a point, a point that we don't just cancel people because of their beliefs, but what a beautiful thing it is when we build bridges of love and work for the common good.
So doing what is good may refer to any deed done out of love for others, which also may involve standing up for the underdog and the oppressed. But in this context, this means that we must also be willing to participate in activities that promote the welfare of the community. And as Christian citizens, I believe that we have an awesome opportunity to to help take the lead in doing some good stuff in our community. Because we are invited to be participants with God in his renewal project, to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And these are the very words that Jesus prayed. It is his heart beat. And as Matthew 5 verse 16 says, in the same way, let your light shine before people so that they can see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So as we finish up now, I'd love for us to take a moment, to take a moment to reflect on our relationships in all our circles of life. And how, in the words of Paul, can we intentionally choose to be peaceable, to be generous, and known for pursuing the common good? Because we have a conciliatory, constructive, and compassionate role that we can play in our community and in our circles by choosing to reflect Christ in our day-to-day relationships. And I believe that this is a compelling witness, a form of being able to show that we are living in the Jesus way, a way of our incredibly gracious, kind, and loving Savior. We love because he first loved us. Thanks so much for joining us for today's message. We hope and pray that it's been most helpful. If you are keen to find out a little bit more about us as a church whanau or you'd like to touch base, then you can go to coast.org.nz and there you'll find information about our in-person services, online services, various resources and activities. Enjoy the day. Be blessed.